This year marks the 100th anniversary of the publication of the most famous poem in the English language, The Second Coming, by William Butler Yeats. When Yeats wrote this extraordinary poem, the world was literally falling apart. It was the aftermath of World War I, the so-called Great War, or War to End All Wars, and Europe was filled with the horrific consequences of death and destruction, injury and madness. Following the war, a communist revolution in Russia shook the world. Germany suffered harsh economic sanctions that created the fertile ground for the rise of fascism. In Ireland, Yeats' own country, a rebellion against British rule was crushed, dashing all hopes for Irish independence. Then on top of all the violence and revolution in the world at that time, there was a global pandemic called the Spanish flu that ravaged the world and killed millions. Sound familiar? Yates' own wife, Georgie, who was pregnant at the time, contracted the virus and was close to death. With humanity in shambles and his wife struggling to recover from the virus, Yates wrote these famous apocalyptic words. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart and the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is everywhere. The ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. Hardly are those words out when a vast image of Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in the sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and head of a man, a gaze blind and pitiless as the sun is moving its slow thighs. While all about it real shadows of the indignant desert birds, the darkness drops again. But now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. Throughout history, Yeats' words have been used by everybody from Bobby Kennedy, Joan Didion, Joni Mitchell, Lou Reed, The Sopranos, The West Wing, Stephen King, and The Roots, just to name a few. They are commonly quoted in times of catastrophe and crisis because Yeats conjured the common language of Scripture to cast a vision of the second coming as a great monstrosity. The world of Yeats was not all that different from our own. No one of any good intentions is exercising leadership or control. The center cannot hold. The institutions of our culture and civilization are powerless to hold off the forces of evil. In their impotence, Yeats wondered, just as we wonder, what rough beast will come to replace them? Yeats believed 
The age of Christendom was coming to an end and a new era antithetical to progress and reason was dawning. And as it turned out, Yeats was right. The 20th century was far worse than he predicted. It was the bloodiest century ever recorded, which saw the rise of the KKK, Nazi Germany, the Holocaust, World War II, lynching, white supremacy, Vietnam, neoliberalism, mass incarceration, and never-ending war in the Middle East, climate change, and now another global pandemic. A rough beast has been slouching over the world for a hundred years now. And as we come to the end of the second decade of the 21st century, we wonder if this rough beast will finally devour humanity once and for all. The phenomenon of turning to Yeats in moments of crisis led author Fintan O'Toole to create the Yeats Test, an imaginary index that contends that the more politicians and the media are quoting from Yeats, the worse the world has become. And if that's true, then 2020 should have been the year of Yeats because things truly fell apart and the center did not hold. This has been one of the darkest years on record. No one living that I have talked to this year can remember anything like it. Not even my 97-year-old grandmother who lived through the Depression and World War II and the 60s in Vietnam. Yeats' terrifying vision has become our reality today. The deadly 20th century has become even more deadly 21st. And this global pandemic has become our story. And yet, nevertheless, and even so, I have hope. I still have hope. I have hope because I know there is another story for us, a story that is more powerful than any inherited from our history or any story that slouches over us tonight, a story that is teeming with life, pregnant with potential, and chock full of explosive capacity for new beginnings. Yes, I'm talking about the story of Christmas, of course, of Mary and Joseph and their journey to Bethlehem, of the shepherds and the angels, of the good news of great joy and peace on earth and goodwill to all, the story of the birth of Jesus. But I'm also talking about the story of God. John put the story this way, and the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. The story we hear every year from the Gospel of Luke is the story of God, the story of God and Israel, the story of God and humanity. It's the story of God and us. We've heard the Christmas story so many times over the years that our familiarity with it breeds contempt at this point. For many of us, it has either become an old and tired tale or a nursery rhyme so sentimental and sweet that hearing it again is like sucking on candy at Christmas. What could be more soppy than a baby and his mother? But we are living today in what often feels like a godless and godforsaken world, a world so harsh and cold that we must admit no narrative of familiarity or sentimentality could possibly have the power to liberate us, at least not this year. A few years ago, though, I watched an interview with author William Paul Young. 
who was asked what he thought was the meaning of Christmas. He said, my picture of Christmas is a circle of love, creator, Christ, and spirit in perfect love together. And they're working out the details of coming to find us in our lostness. And they decide to break their perfect circle of love and invite a 13-year-old girl into it. And they submit to her. They say, here's this crazy thing we'd like to do, Mary. What do you think? And she replies, all right, yeah, I'm in. And they say, good, then we're going in too. That's the beauty of Christmas. The self-giving love of God that wants to be shared so desperately that God decided to submit God's self to a 13-year-old girl. And she says, yes. There is more beauty in that story than we have room to bear. As the Apostle Paul said, every one of God's promises is yes in Christ, and for this reason we must say amen. Following suit, the great theologian Karl Barth once claimed, Jesus is God's yes to us all. And the beautiful and yet incomprehensible mystery of the incarnation is that God and Mary both said yes. They both said yes. Christmas is the story of a new beginning. And just as it was in the beginning in Genesis when God said, let there be light and it is good, the new beginning of the good news begins with another authoritative word of God's affirmation. In those days, a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all should be registered while Quirinius was governor of Syria and dot, 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 God said yes. God said yes. Yes to what, though, you might ask? Yes to humanity. Yes to the human story. Yes to the future of the human race. Yes to a new beginning. Yes to going forward with us. Yes to a whole new world. And it's not just a yes to the beauty of humanity, the good parts of us. It's yes to all of humanity, all our messiness, all of our frailty and fragility, all of our imperfections and blemishes and weaknesses. Jesus' birth is God's wild affirmative declaration that all of humanity, especially our precariousness and vulnerability, is holy, is sacred, is good. The incarnation is God's unbelievably positive pronouncement of solidarity with all that is human. All of our ordinary life, all our eating and drinking, breathing and sleeping, loving and communing and creating lives of interdependence and mutuality to everything that we are that makes us human, God said yes. But we live in a world of no, do we not? A world that says no to humanity. No to human need, no to human vulnerability, a world that says no to certain kinds of bodies and certain kinds of beings, a world that says no in so many ways to so many people. We live in a world that demeans and dehumanizes all people, but with heavier and more deadly consequences for some more than others. This has always been true, conquering people and oppressing them for the purpose of occupation, and then 
counting them for the purpose of taxation was not just Rome's practice, a manifest destiny and an imperial program for the world. It has been the logic and impulse of every empire from Egypt to Babylon, from Persia to France, from Spain to Britain, from Germany to America. All empires count people for the purpose of taxation. And then we decide who counts in the empire, who matters and how much they matter. And if that's not dehumanizing enough to tell people that they only count in the empire so far as they are able to pay taxes to the crown, here in America, we're now trying to tell people that they must pay taxes even if we don't think that they are worthy enough to count. Dehumanizing. Embedded in the good news of God's yes to humanity is God's no to empire. And no to all that dehumanizes. How do we know this? Because it would have been perfectly logical for God to say yes to Augustus or Rome or the census or Governor Quirinius or the peoples in places of political and economic power or the leaders of the domination system or the institutions of dehumanization. But that is not what God said at all, is it? The where and the how of God's great yes to humanity The particularities of the context of God's yes are incredibly important and instructive. God did not say yes to Caesar or Rome or power, but yes to Mary and Joseph. Yes to Nazareth and Galilee, Bethlehem and Judea. Yes to the Jewish people who were suffering in lowly exile under imperial occupation. Yes to the shepherds working as day laborers and cattle herders. Yes to the animals in the manger. Yes to a vulnerable and defenseless infant wrapped in rags. Yes to the silent night. Yes to the poor and the forgotten, the disenfranchised and the destitute and the dehumanized. Yes to the godless and God-forsaken people of the earth with their back against the wall. That's what God said yes to. The real life, saving, liberating truth of the incarnation is not that God took on flesh once and for all in Jesus, but that God has taken on flesh in all people everywhere and always. Incarnation is not a doctrine or dogma about Christ alone. Incarnation is about us. It's about humanity and creation The story of Christmas means that each and every single one of us, not just Jesus, is the incarnation and embodiment of God in the flesh. That's the reality of Emmanuel. God with us means God within us. God has taken on flesh and blood in each of us and moved into all of our neighborhoods and lives embodied in all of humanity. God's yes means that all bodies, yes, absolutely all Bodies are now considered the embodiment of God. The incarnation is the full affirmation of all human bodies, all people and all flesh, young and old, male and female, Jew and Greek, slave and free, big and little, straight and gay, bodies of different abilities and gifts, capacities and intellects. God is over all and through all and in all bodies. In God's yes to humanity, God said yes to radical equality and yes to ever-expansive inclusivity. What was special about Jesus is that he lived the truth of this reality by treating everyone always as if they were the incarnation of God in the flesh. He lived 
God's affirmative yes to our bodily materiality by loving everything on earth as if it was the embodiment of God. And he affirmed all bodies to the point of losing his own body on the cross in a final affirmative yes to all who are oppressed. Maybe the center would hold if we had a different center. St. Francis once said, Christ is the one whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. What if the incarnation was the center of our faith? The reality that God is in every human body. Jesus most beautifully epitomized this reality when he said, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Truly, I tell you, just as you did it for one of the least of me who are my members of my family, you did it also to me. This is the reason Richard Rohr says that Christmas became a great celebratory feast because it says that it's good to be human. It's good to be on this earth. It's good to be flesh. It's good to eat and sleep and drink and have emotions. We don't need to be ashamed of any of this. God loves matter and physicality and humanity. Incarnation meant not just that God became Jesus, but that God said yes to the material universe. Divine incarnation took the form of an indwelling presence in every human body. And so the good news of great joy is that God is forever coming into the world. You know, there may always be some rough beast like the one from Yeats' apocalyptic vision, slouching toward a perceived Bethlehem to be born, to dehumanize us and our world even more. But... The God who loves humanity will also be always coming into the world to be born again. Always saying yes once more. This year we may not have felt as though God was with us. In fact, we may have felt that God had abandoned us. That we were God forsaken. But in spite of that, God was with us. It may have been hard to see God in 2020, but she was there. She was just wearing scrubs. God was every nurse and specialist, EMT and physician, doctor and surgeon and chaplain, frontline worker in a hospital, retirement home or assisted living center. God was every patient with COVID-19 and those who walked beside them. God was every organizer and protester marching for justice and working to rehumanize the dehumanized of our world. God was every person who wore a mask and washed their hands and social distance. God was every individual or community who rallied together to help those most impacted by the pandemic. God was everyone who registered people to vote. God said yes to humanity 2,020-something years ago. But God is still saying yes to all of us over and over again, every single day, in and through us human beings. God is saying yes again tonight. We are the incarnation of God for our friends and neighbors, for our world. And our neighbors are the embodiment of God in the flesh for us each and every day. 
And so we were God's yes, we are God's yes, and we will be God's yes for the world. While he was locked up and cut off from family and friends at a prison cell in Nazi Germany, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, Jesus stands at the door knocking, but in total reality he comes in the form of the beggar, the dissolute human child in ragged clothes asking for help. God confronts us in every person we meet. As long as there are people, Christ will walk the earth as our neighbor, as the one through whom God speaks to us and makes demands of us. This is the great seriousness and blessedness of the Christmas message. Christ is standing at the door and lives in the form of all human beings among us. The good news of Christmas is that God said yes. God said yes to humanity, yes to creation, and yes to us. And just like Mary, we too can respond to God's yes with an affirmation of our own. Even when it looks like things have fallen apart, when the center cannot hold, when anarchy has been loosed upon the world and the blood-dimmed tide seems to be everywhere, we can still experience the true power of Christmas if we are willing to join with God in affirming all that is human and standing with Mary to say yes, 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 and amen. Amen.